We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 21 as we return now that it's January of the new year, as we return to our series in Matthew. It's our tradition here at uh, Chattanooga Valley that um, in this fall we do an Old Testament series. We're currently in um, Isaiah. And then as winter and spring, we are in the New Testament currently in Matthew. And in the summer, we do a topical um, series, typically on something like the Christian life. And in the spirit, as some of you are aware that I do, in the spirit of previously on Blacklist or something like that, um, we're backing up in order to get a running start We're backing up to 21, and we're going to be looking at the first 22 verses, because there are three snapshots that Matthew gives us by which we can orient ourselves and get to know um, our King. This is, uh, 21 begins with the well-known Um, passage about uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that final week, the week of his passion. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need, needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and, and that, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame come to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, And lodged there. Now, in the morning, 
as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves, and he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us, his people, even in the 21st century. So let us go to him in prayer. Father, we come as your children, gathered by your Spirit in the name of Christ to this, your word given to us at this time and this hour. It is a word that comes to us in the language we use every day, and so it is very easy for us who have become accustomed to not only the words and the syntax, but also to the stories that we encounter in the Scripture to dismiss it. How desperately we need your spirit to strengthen us. Father, to calm the storms of distraction in our hearts, in our minds, perhaps even in our hands and in our laps, that we may behold your glory and hear you speak. So to that end, we pray that your spirit would work. Feast us upon your truth, guard us from error, that you might be glorified in us and through us. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. So as the, disciples, as the uh, Israelites had come out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness, God gave them all kinds of instructions. And one of the more curious instructions comes to us from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses to instruct Aaron, this is is how you will bless my people. You will say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom. What would it look like if that actually happened? What would it look like if the Lord would actually bless and keep and make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us? What would it look like for the Lord to lift up the countenance of his delight upon us and grant us his peace? That's the question, of course, that burns in the people of God throughout the ages. All of those parts there, the blessing, the keeping, the face shining upon and being gracious, the Lord lifting up the countenance of his delight and granting peace, all of those are constituent parts of God's glory, the glory of his love. It's the thing for which we hunger and thirst. It's the thing for which we ache in longing. 
is the thing that sort of animates so much of the ministry of, in the storyline of the Old Testament. The arrival of Christ, Matthew wants us to know, is the arrival of that promise now in the flesh. Jesus is the benediction of the triune God. He is the gift of God's delight. He is the gift of God's blessing. He is the gift of God's peace. Those and these things are the promised constituent parts of God's shalom, of God's kingdom, of God's reign in this world among his people to make all things new. And so the people had been trained to wait and to watch and to look for and to hunger for the anointed one, the appointed one. The Hebrew word for the anointed and appointed one is the Messiah. The Greek word for the anointed and appointed one is the Christ. And people had been trained to wait for such a one, for, to look for such a one, to watch for such a one. Matthew's story from the beginning has been, I have good news for you. The promised king has come. The anointed one, the appointed one is here and his name is Jesus. And it's been terribly confusing. Because it's not at all what the people expected. It's easy for us to hear the blessing that, the, that Aaron is commanded to, to give to the people. Bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And for us to define all of those constituent parts according to our agendas, according to our values, according to the desires of our heart. So that when the reality shows up, it is so different than what we have trained ourselves to expect that we don't recognize it. And Matthew is saying, I want you to recognize this. The king has come. A new era has begun. And so we have Matthew's account of this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is the arrival of the king. Jesus comes as the perfect fulfillment of the perfect prophet, of the perfect king, of the perfect priest. And he arrives at Jerusalem as such. And he acts in Jerusalem as such. The reason I want us to look at these three pictures together is because Matthew is capturing for us Jesus acting out his message. It's in the prophetic tradition. It's a prophetic tradition in which Jesus is actually enacting his message rather than simply declaring his message. He arrives as the king of peace because he is, in fact, the arriving king of peace. He goes into the temple and he purifies the temple because, in fact, he is the God of the temple. 
He actually effects his justice. He enacts his justice in the case of the fig tree because he is the king of justice. Jesus arrives. There is so much in these 22 verses that we could look at. And so I just want us to take us to, to look at a couple things. First, he arrives as the peaceable king. He arrives as the peacemaking king. The king who comes to make peace. He's a humble king. So often in the ancient world, a king, a conquering king, will have won his victory and then he will come marching in on his strong steed with his crowds around him, singing out his praises. And so he arrives at the new city that he has just conquered as their new king. And Jesus reverses the order as though to say something entirely new, something entirely unexpected is happening. He comes first as the humble king before securing his victory over the city. And those of us who are familiar with the story, we recognize what's going to happen in the days that follow. The very crowds that welcome him as king will in just a few days be demanding his crucifixion, his death. Because he's not like any king that they expected and certainly not like any king that they want. Jesus arrives on a donkey. And the people recognize him and give him praise in ways that they don't fully understand as the appointed and anointed one. Jesus comes to establish that great shalom that has long been promised. Isn't that great? He comes to me, he comes to you, he comes to us, he comes to his world, he comes to Jerusalem as that great king of that long-promised shalom. Shalom has been defined by someone as comprehensive human flourishing. It's a tricky word because we love the language of flourishing in our day and age. But it's comprehensive human flourishing according to our created design. He comes to grant to us the full life that we were created to have, which is not always the life that we want but it is the life we were created for. It's not always conformed to our desires and our dreams, but it is the one that fulfills our deepest desires and our deepest dreams and our deepest hungers. The arrival of the king, the arrival of the Christ, the arrival of the anointed and appointed one is the one criteria necessary for this thing called shalom. The presence of God with his people. I come to make the blessings of my shalom flow as deep 
and as wide and as high as the curse is found. Which is wonderful. We love that language. We love the language of peace. Which is why it's so disorienting for us when we see the next snapshot. Matthew turns the page and we've seen the king of peace arrive and we say, praise the Lord, all violence and all conflict is gone. And then he turns the page and we see this episode in the temple. What in the world? Again, we have to remember that Jesus is acting like a prophet. The fact of the matter is, as most commentators will show you, that he, he went in and he overturned, uh, he, excuse me, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. The language of drive out is language that is often used of curse. It's often used of vanquishing of enemies. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so most commentators will observe that this obviously didn't take, long, take very long because almost assuredly there would have been a response if it had lasted more than just a few minutes. But more to the point, they would say, there's no doubt that they set up the tables immediately the next day. And so the question is, what's going on here? Well, the, the fact is that Jesus is enacting out his message. He is acting as the prophet the perfect prophet that he is. And he is declaring that the king has arrived to take his throne. Now this seems strange to us as modern Westerners, and especially as North Americans. Because if the king, which is a political category, arrived to take his throne, would he not go to the palace would he not immediately go and take care of Pilate? Would he not immediately go and remove all the political power structures that are in place? Why the temple? Well, because the temple is the footstool of God's throne. This is the center of power, of cosmic power. The king is arriving to purify his palace, to purify the place of his reign. He is not only the king of peace, but he is the king of purity. Because you see, the peace of Christ requires and effects the purity of Christ. This is really hard for us, because for us, peace is the absence of all tension and conflict. But in the kingdom of God, peace is actually the presence of righteousness and justice. The temple episode is shocking and jarring, having watched the peaceable king and peacemaking king come to and be welcomed and celebrated and enter into Jerusalem, his behavior in the temple seems entirely out of place. He 
He drives these people out. And it's interesting to notice who he drives out. It's not only the perpetrators, but it's all the participants. It's not only the ones who are selling, but it's also the ones who are buying. And of course, he drives out and he clears out the location of the activity, the tables. And he purifies the positions. Those who are actually orchestrating the events, who are actually profiting from the activity, those who are seeking to profit, those who are seeking to seize for themselves position and a power. There was this, there was this uh, ungodly alliance, if you will, between the religious authorities in Jerusalem and the political Roman authorities. You keep your distance, we'll keep our distance. You keep things under control there, we'll keep things under control here. And it was a very fragile thing. And so by compromising and manipulating and strategizing, they were able to secure for themselves positions. Jesus comes in and he upends all of that. Because that's not how his house is to be ordered. His house is the center of his activity for his purposes and his priorities. It is not the center of our activities for our purposes, for our agenda. You see, what happened is that these people who were orchestrating all of this and profiting from all of this and organizing all of this and were participating in all of this, they had come to co-opt the place and the purposes of God's house for their own ends, seeking to make profit, to seize and secure for themselves the blessing of God's glory. We see the same thing happen with the whole episode in Acts with Simon the magician. Philip comes into Samaria and Simon the magician sees him and he professes faith. That's wonderful. And then he sees Philip, excuse me, Peter, it's Peter, I'm sorry, who says, be healed to this one who is sick in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Simon the magician says, wow, that's an amazing trick. How can I do that? And Peter, I mean, Simon, he's just, he's being sincere. He's acting out of ignorance. Peter seems to respond. in an outsized, disproportionate way. Why? Because Simon is seeking to lay hold of the Spirit, to leverage the Spirit for his own profit, for his own goals. We see something similar happening in the whole story of Ananias and Sapphira. The examples from throughout Scripture can be multiplied. You see, the temple problem was that people were pursuing the worship and obedience of God according to the wisdom and strategies of the world. It's good to worship God, we all agree. But it might be better if we worshiped him in this way or in that way 
if we added this or if we added that. It makes more sense, it's more reasonable, it's more palatable. You see, Jesus came as the peacemaking king and he purged the temple, his throne room, of all that contaminated it, of all that polluted it, of all that hindered the peace, the shalom that he was making. In fact, the point is underscored in that next paragraph. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Those who, those who, who appeared to actually belong in the temple, he purged. And those who we know from Old Testament ought not to be in the temple, he healed and welcomed. He absolutely reversed the world order beginning at the temple. And so inaugurates the work of his peacemaking. But this is something more going on. He purged it of self-seeking, oppressive, opportunistic avarice and disease so that those who appeared to be firmly and rightly in control were, were dethroned, as it were, and those others who had been debarred were welcomed in. It sounds like a year of freely granted freedom and joy and shalom. The arrival of Jesus was the beginning of the year of Jubilee. You see, the year of Jubilee was a time when all debts were to be forgiven. People were to be granted back their land. It was never implemented, and for those of us who are in a capitalistic society, we can understand why. I worked hard to accumulate all of this wealth and all of this land, and now, every 50 years, I have to give it back? How unreasonable can you be? As unreasonable as the king of peace himself. When Jesus arrives... The year of Jubilee begins. But this is no mere whim. It's not that Jesus is a benign tyrant that just goes about doing things as he sees fit whenever the mood strikes him, which is exactly what we feel like is happening in that next episode as Jesus comes back into the city. That next snapshot that Matthew gives us, he comes back into the city. And Jesus is hungry. He's seeing a fig tree, he goes to it, he finds nothing on it, and then he curses it and the fig tree dies. It's like, dude, don't get in his way. If he's in a bad mood, he's in a bad mood. But remember, Jesus is a prophet. And he is arriving and he is speaking and he is acting in such a way that we would know that the king of glory himself has arrived to establish the year of Jubilee, the reign of his shalom. You see, justice and righteousness means living in God's world according to God's design, functioning as we were created to function. 
Now, since the days of Genesis chapter 3, none of us are naturally inclined to live that way. All of us are naturally bent in on ourselves to pursue our own dreams, our own desires, our own goals, our own objectives. Biblically, that's the seed of injustice and unrighteousness. The common biblical word for that is sin. Injustice and the cost, the wages of sin as we know, is in fact death. It's both a natural consequence as well as a, a, um, a fruit of the wrath of God himself, the holy one, the just one, the righteous one. So justice and righteousness are living and loving as we were designed and intended to by the God of life and love himself. And so when Jesus comes to the fig tree, even though it was early in the year, there is the proper expectation that since there are leaves, there's going to be early fruit. Now, people will tell you that that fruit is because it's so young and because it's so early, it's bitter, but it is edible. And so Jesus, being hungry, comes to it expecting to find there fruit, but he finds none. So that shows us two things. One, it shows us that it's not living according to its design for the time, but it also shows us that it will not produce later. Because those first figs that come onto the tree are indication that actual, the sweet figs will come later in the year, a sweet and bountiful harvest. The creator himself arrives at the tree and he finds that it is not producing as it was designed to produce. It was not living according to its design. And so it dies. But... Also notice this, that in the prophetic tradition, the fig tree as the vine had come to represent the life of Israel. And so there are these images throughout the Old Testament prophets of vineyards that don't produce the, the grapes or of vineyards that produce, in fact, wild grapes or of fig trees that don't produce the fruit that they are designed to produce. And the prophets used that repeatedly to speak of the spiritual condition of Israel. And so Jesus, as Matthew is telling the story, is coming back into the city. The disciples and the crowds are wondering, what in the world? Help me make sense of this arrival of the peacemaking king and the, and the temple purging. What in the world is going on? And so Jesus comes to the fig tree. And he says, this is what's going on. We're not living according to our design. The peace of Christ's reign effects and requires the purity of Christ's kingdom being structured and functioning according to Christ's design. He is, after all, the king of peace, purity, and justice. He is our king. He's my king. He's your king. 
This is the king who loves us, and this is the king whom we love. This is the king who causes us to live. This is the king in, in whom and for whom and by whom we live and breathe and have our being. So what does it tell us about our king and the kingdom of which we are citizens? These snapshots, well, it tells us that loving the king and living in his kingdom as citizens in Christ and of this kingdom, that means that we are covenantally obligated in Christ to live as Christ, as a people of purity, as a people of justice, as a people of peace. So the question is this, in terms of the snapshot of purity there as he cleanses the temple, are we seeking Christ for what we can get out of him? Is Christ our magic talisman that we believe will somehow help us to realize our dreams? And keep in mind, this is often how we hear that famous passage in Philippians used. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the way that is often applied is I can do everything that my heart desires because Christ strengthens me. But that's not what's going on. I can do all things that Christ requires because Christ strengthens me. And that's a scary thought because Christ calls us to die to ourselves that we might live to him. How in the world can we do that? I can't do it. You can't do it. We can't do it. But we can through Christ who strengthens us. Or do we find ourselves, rather than seeking Christ for our own gain, do we rather enter into his presence on a daily basis? Do we find ourselves bowing our knee and praying to him, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. For you are the king, and yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. How can you know which kind of person you are? Well, look at how you react when things don't go your way or when someone suggests that maybe you're walking the wrong way. Not only are we a people of purity, but we are a people of justice. Seeking the justice and righteousness of the king himself for ourselves. Paul exhorts us that we must constantly be taking stock, constantly be paying attention, constantly be prayerfully examining our own feelings, thoughts, words, and deeds regarding ourselves and regarding others and regarding our circumstances. Are we primarily shaped by the suspicion and cynicism and arrogance of our culture as we look at ourselves and others and our circumstances? Or are we primarily shaped by the power of the resurrection? and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And for others, you understand that if we are a people of justice for others, that means that we need to be feeling about others and speaking to one another and thinking about one another and acting with one another according to the patterns and priorities and values of Scripture the patterns and values and priorities of the King Himself. And this is why Paul exhorts us 
to speak to one another, to feel about one another, to see one another according to the patterns of the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because we're being shaped into a new people by the King of Peace. Indeed, we are to be a people of purity and a people of justice, not only for ourselves and for one another, but for the least and the lost and the lonely, our neighbors, strangers, and even our enemies. That's the import of verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them because that's our king. He delights in touching the least, the lost, and the lonely, the neighbor, the stranger, and the enemy, and bringing them to his table. That's who we are, because that's who our king is, a king of peace, a king of purity, a king of justice. Brothers and sisters, this is what my heart hungers for. This is what our community hungers for. This is what our world hungers for. This is why we were raised to new life by the King of glory, the King of peace, the King of purity, the King of justice. This is the power of his resurrection. This is who we are. So Father, we pray.